Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Things never stop. It's just one thing after another. And that's one of the interesting things that's reflected in, in this week's Parsha. Normally speaking, you have white spaces separating the, the different sections, the different ideas within the, the Torah portion. And Rashi brings in, in Vayikra that those spaces actually were times when Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was getting the Torah from God, thought. He meditated on what the previous thought was or the previous section was, and it's just a time to ab- absorb. And what's so interesting about Yaakov running for his life after the death threat from his twin brother, Esav, and he starts the Parsha running, and then he's going to create the entire family of the Jewish people, which is amazing, at the house of Lovin. And so there's no break, there is no white space in the entire Torah portion, which is unique in the Torah, which just shows you that it's just event after event after event. It's just a a whirlwind. And we've seen over the last couple of months how absolutely on a revealed level in lockstep what's going on in the Torah is going on in the world. We have this as a general principle, but we've actually seen like lines every single week in the Torah portion exactly what's going on. And to give you this week's example, it says, give me back my women and children, which is incredible since this is the first week that the hostages began to be released and they were women and children only. So this is just another amazing example of how as Rabbi Wolfson put it so poetically one time, God takes the letters of the, the weekly Torah portion and he weaves them together into the fabric of the universe. We were talking about waking up. There's a dream in this week's Parsha, the famous dream of Yaakov dreaming of this ladder that starts on the, the bottom and goes all the way up into the heavens and there are angels going up and down. So it's appropriate to talk about not just dreams and going to sleep, but about waking up. And every month has something that needs to be fixed. This month that we're in right now, Kislev, the aspect that needs to be fixed in our lives is sleep. Very interesting, because also this is the time of year where there's the most darkness. And of course, everybody knows that sleep doesn't just refer to the time when you're lying in bed with your eyes closed, that it's, it's very easy to sleep, walk through life. And so how, how do we wake up? So it's worth just reviewing some of the laws of going to sleep. According to the Rambam, you're supposed to lay on your left side. If that feels uncomfortable or unnatural, you just kind of start off that way. You can start off for a second or two in that position just to, just to as they say, makayim the shita the Rambam, to fulfill the words of the Rambam. And after a while, it become more natural. I know it was not natural for me, but now it's extremely comfortable. And the Rambam says there are health benefits to it too, that your stomach lies on your liver and then that, that aids digestion. And then you're supposed to wake up on your right side. So again, if you come to consciousness and you're not on your right side, then just turn to your right side and then you can get out of bed. One of the things 
that came to me one time is, you know, mystically speaking, the left side correlates with Gvura, or Din, and the right side correlates with Chesed, or Kindness. So it's interesting. You know, when you, we talk about the final letters of the Olive Bays, the final letters correlate with Midas Adin, meaning with, with judgment. And, and if you think, well, why, why would the final letters have this particular spiritual attribute? It's because they are ending a word. In other words, when you end something, that, that correlates with Gvura, with Din. Gvura is interesting. Gvura can be translated as power. But the best example that I heard for it, men, by the way, are associated with chesed, and women are associated with gvura. And gvura has a very positive spiritual attribute to it. It's not just ending things. It's, it's giving form to things, giving shape to things. So the, the best model for that, in terms of the male-female dynamic, is in the creation of a baby. That, that the man provides this sort of amorphous idea called kindness. Like kindness is very expansive. You know, you, you don't really think of targeted kindness. Like kindness is something that just sort of like flows. And gavura, which is attributed to the female aspect, takes that energy and then shapes it into something very concrete and very defined. We've got an expression in English, which is a house is not a home, right? You can have a four walls and maybe even a, a beautiful piece of real estate, but it may not be on the level of a home. A woman takes that house and turns it into a home. That's Gavoran. You go to sleep on your left side. So why on your left side? What I would like to suggest is if that is associated with Gavora, which is also associated with the final letters, you are ending the day. So ending the day correlates with Gavora, and then that would make sense that you would go to sleep on your left side. When you wake up, you wake up on your right side. You know why? Because the future is unwritten. That's the level of chesed. Which direction is it going to go in? That's, that's up to you. You get to create the day. So it's appropriate to wake up on your right side. So let's go further. Next, next stops in, in, in waking up. Then it says that you're supposed to rise up, and this is on the first page of the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch. You're supposed to get out of bed like a lion. There's a little, little bit of wiggle room on what that means exactly. <laughs> You can leap out of bed, which is, I think, what most people associate that with, and that's a, that's a very great thing. But apparently lions, they like to stretch and take a moment <laughs> before they actually rise up. And believe it or not, that is in accordance with the Magen Avraham, who's one of the great halachic deciders. And he says, you know, you can take a moment. You can take a moment before you get out of bed. Although, you have to be very careful when you take a moment. One of my teachers, Rabbi Green, said that he has a rule with himself before he gets out of bed, no conversations. Because it's very easy to chat yourself up <laughs> or to grab your phone and the opening of the eyes to the actual feet on the floor can turn into a period of minutes or for some people, hours. So best to Try to get quickly out of bed. 
So what does it mean to rise like a lion? So this Torah came to me this week. I think about these things as I do each step, by the way, in the morning. So Aryeh is lion in Hebrew. It's Aleph Resh and then Yud Hey. You know how you remember? Because it's Elul Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Hoshana Rabbah. That's how you spell lion. Because <laughs> you're waking up the year like a lion, right? So Kabbalistically speaking, the letters Aleph, Yud, and Hey are the most godly letters. Aleph, Yud, and Hey. And there's a lot of Kabbalah on it. It spells the word Aye. Rabbi Nachman talks about this. Aye, where? It means where in Hebrew. Like sometimes you, you're wondering, where is God? And you, you can yell out, Aye, where? And that, that can awaken a, a level of revelation. But Kabbalistically, it also stands for the words Es Yom HaShabbat, meaning to say that the most elemental aspects of, of the created universe, where time exists, is Shabbos. I heard from Reb Shlomo, what, what time was it before God created the world? And the answer is, it was Shabbos. <laughs> and that's one of the holy things to have in mind by third meal, by Shalashudas, is that it's the time right before the world is created. Because Motzei Shabbos is Yom Rishon, right? The world was created on the first day of creation. So the third meal is right before the first day of creation, which means another aspect of why Third meal on Shabbos is called Riva Deriva by the Zohar, which means it's the holiest time of Shabbos, is because you can project and imagine what it is you want to do over the coming week, because on some deep level, the world has not been created yet. As the Or HaChayim HaKodesh says, God creates the world one week at a time. So right before the, the option on the world gets picked up again, and we get a new world, that's Shalashudas. It's right before creation. So, so the most elemental aspects of time is Shabbos. I'll tell you something intense that the Eretzvi, the Kozhiklover Rav, says. He says that he brings this medrash from Rabbi Shumin Bar Yochai, which says that Sunday has a soulmate. You, do, you know, it's not just people who have soulmates. The days of the week have soulmates. Monday, so, Sunday soulmate is Monday. Tuesday soulmate is Wednesday. Thursday soulmate is Friday. That leaves Shabbos alone, right? Because there's seven days of the week. That's an odd number. So Shabbos turns to Hashem and says, who will be my soulmate? And God says to Shabbos, your soulmate is the Jewish people. So interestingly, what happened at Mount Sinai, when the Jews accepted the Torah, by the way, the Torah was given on Shabbos day at dawn. When the Jews accepted the Torah on Shabbos, Shabbos got liberated from just being one day of the week. In other words, on the deepest level, every day is Shabbos. The Messianic period goes by another name. Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. 
So there's an aspect to Shabbos that actually exists even during the weekdays. And that was awakened by the Jewish people at Mount Sinai when they accepted the Torah. How do you keep Shabbos during the week? By saying, God, everything is in your hands. That's, that's how you keep Shabbos during the week. Also, by having a Malava Malka. Because by Havdalah, remember, Shabbos has another name, Yom Ashvi, the seventh day. By the seventh day, when you're making Havdalah at the end of Shabbos, you have an opportunity. There's a fork in the road. You can either go back down from the seventh day back to the first day, or you can go from the seventh day to the eighth day. <laughs> What's the idea of going from the seventh day of the eighth day? That means that you're actually bringing Shabbos into the week. Remember, when we count the days of the week, every day when we say the Psalm of the day, we say, today is the first day of the, Shab of the Shabbos. Today is the second day of the Shabbos. Today is the third day of the Shabbos. This, this idea that every day is Shabbos is, is real. That's real. But we have to awaken that. So when we wake up in the morning, we're supposed to wake up like a lion. So the most elemental aspect of time is Shabbos. And that's the letters Aleph, Yud, and He. Et, Yom, HaShabbat. Now, when you wake up like a lion, that's Aryeh. That's those three holy letters plus the letter Resh. So here's the Torah that came to me this week, which is that, what does it mean to, to rise like a lion? So the Gomorrah in Shabbos, page 104, goes through each of the letters of the olive base. This is the Talmud now. And it tells you what each letter of the Hebrew alphabet stands for. The letter Resh stands for Rasha, which means wicked. So based on that, I want to say the following. Aryeh, you've got the three holiest letters and the letter Resh. So what does it mean to wake up like a lion? It means that you take the holiness within you and you get rid of the Rasha that's within you. You get rid of any, any lesser aspect of yourself and you kick it out. That's how you start the day, right? That's what it means to be a lion. Okay, so what do you do after you rise out of bed? Now you make your bed. It says in Gemur Psachim that when you make your bed, you create a malach, an angel, that advocates for your livelihood. So it's a blessing for parnosa. It's a blessing for, for livelihood, to make your bed. And that can take all of five seconds, but it's an important thing to do. And also you see an aspect of order in your life, and you see that you're capable of accomplishing things. It has very direct psychological benefits to make your bed. Then ideally you've got a washing basin and a washing cup next to your bed, and you can, you can wash your hands there. It's okay to walk to the bathroom to wash your hands, but spiritually speaking, it's considered better if you actually have it within what we say Dalit Amos, within eight feet of your bed. So normally speaking, if you can put it next to your bed, that's a good thing. I remember I had the privilege of being in Maron for Lagba Omer many years ago. And I spent the night at a place called Yad Ezra. 
which is a building nearby. And I was there with a lot of Hasidim. I was basically just crashing some, some yeshiva kind of, kind of event. And so it was like all Hasidim and, and me sleeping on the floor of this large hall. And I'll never forget, there was like this buzzing right before everyone was like laying down on the floor to go to bed where people were arranging to have their water to wash in the morning next to their bed. And how were they doing it? They were taking plastic water bottles, like those plastic disposable or recyclable water bottles, and they were cutting them in half, and that's how they made a cup. And they filled the cup with water, and I don't know where they got the bowl. I don't remember that, <laughs> that part, but, but they, they, that's what they did. And it was, it was interesting because they weren't puzzling over it. It's like, this is just something they knew to do and that they, they did. So it was, it was interesting to see, it was special. So normally speaking, we don't drink water or any liquid that's been left uncovered overnight. So there's a mystical reason and a practical reason. The practical reason is maybe, and remember these halakhas are old and we spent a lot of time as a people in the Middle East. So maybe, some creepy crawler or serpent type animal got into the water and that would be really scary. So if you cover it, you prevent against that. On a more mystical level, they say that, that you know, negative spiritual forces can enter into that uncovered liquid. But that's not the case for the water that you leave for washing your hands in the morning, since that water is not meant for drinking. So that's, and that actually interestingly would be an argument that it's more of a mystical idea as opposed to a practical idea. Because if we were worried about say a snake crawling into that water, we would cover it. So anyway, and then you're ready to start your day. Now look at what you've accomplished already. <laughs> you've gone to bed on your left side. You've woken up on your right side. And by the way, one more kavanah that you can have is that when you start the day, you are transforming din to chesed. And by the way, this idea that the morning has this attribute of chesed, when is the capital of chesed, of kindness in the morning? And the answer is right before the sun rises. And the, the reason is because God is preparing all of the kindness that he's about to do in the upcoming day. So, so that's one of the spiritual benefits of davening like early in the morning, first thing in the morning, is that that's really right when all of the kindness that God has been storing up for creation is starting to flow into the world. Now, we have one more aspect about waking up, which is that it actually says in the code of Jewish law that you're supposed to awake the day, which is interesting because normally speaking, for most people, the day wakes you up. So, so what does it mean to wake up the day? And the answer is that normally speaking, when we think of the day awakening, we think that the sun is shining into the darkness and lightening up the darkness. But the idea is that 
through your effort of getting out of bed and for many people, I know that there's so many unsung heroes in the world who you don't know how much effort it takes for them to get out of bed in the morning. That it's really not a small thing at all. And it's really on the level of heroism. And believe me, I'm not joking. I'm being a thousand percent respectful. Just that everyone should know that just to see someone in the supermarket or on the sidewalk or something like that, it's not a small thing. You don't know, you don't know what it means to be able to get out of bed and to just get out of the house. I remember during my mother's final days before she left this world, I was walking down the sidewalk and I was seeing some like really old people like in wheelchairs being wheeled by, you know, attendants. And my normal thought when I would see people like that would be like, I, you know, Rafur Shlema, like they should have a recovery or whatever it is, or they don't look like they're in great shape or, you know, hope they, hope they get better. But I remember my mother couldn't leave her bed. And I was looking at these people who looked like they were in crummy shape. They were in crummy shape, but I was thinking, they're out of the house. I mean, this is pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, I know it's not optimal. I'm not being insensitive, but there's a real spectrum. There's a real spectrum. And how about all the people who you don't see on the street, right? So, so what does it mean to awake the day? That means that through your effort, you are bringing light to the darkness. That's what it means. You are awakening the day, right? It's not the day just waking you up. And, and I'll tell you something. I, I've been going to an early minion, and I'm waking up when it's still dark out. And you really feel the words that I'm saying right now, that when you get out of bed, you are bringing light into the day. You are awakening the day. So let's take this further and talk about Yaakov and his dream now. Remember, he's escaping. And one of the interesting things is that the Torah leaves out a chapter of 14 years because he goes from Esav to the yeshiva of shame and ever. And he learns how to put your life together when it's falling apart. And I learned this from Reb Shlomo, and Yaakov Avinu gives this Torah over to Yosef Atzadik before Yosef Atzadik gets sold into slavery by his brothers. How do you keep the world together when the world is falling apart? Now listen to this. Shem is the son of Noah and was on the ark when literally the world was destroyed and he's one of the people who helps to rebuild it. So can you imagine Yaakov Avinu is running for his life. The whole world is falling apart around him. He's just left the two holiest people in the world, Yitzchak and Rivka. He's exiled from his home. And who is his Rebbe? Who does he go to to get life counsel? the person who watched the entire world get destroyed and then slowly rebuilt.
You know, we have a direct line in terms of the foundation of the Jewish people of how to rebuild the world after it falls apart. And here's where it is. And you know what's so interesting about it? It's not mentioned in the Torah at all. It's hidden. It's hidden. Because there's a certain level of strength. You can't put it into words. It's an energy and it's a, it's a cleaving to life. And it's something that you just got to manifest. You just got to manifest it. I remember Reb Shlomo, and I heard him say it more than once. It was a shidduch that, that he was interested in. I think her name was Tovi. I guess from, like, that would be a, a diminutive of Tova. Right? And he, he, liked, he liked her. And he asked her father about her, you know, I guess to get his approval for going on this meeting. And Reb Shlomo never forgot this exchange between the two of them. He, he said to the father, I don't remember what the exact question was, but something like, can you tell me about Tovi? And he said that the father, I think he said that the father owned a, a grocery store or something like that, and that he was a Hasidish Yid. And he just went, ah, oh, my toivi. <laughs> and that was it. And Reb Shlomo was so impressed because he said that, had he said, well, here's where she went to seminary, and these are her interests, and this, that, and the other thing, that he could not have explained who she was better than, ah, Matoivi. And Reb Shlomo appreciated that so much because there's certain things like this commitment to hold on to life, to cleave to life, that they're beyond words. You know, it says that Yaakov Avinu didn't sleep in a bed for 14 years. What does that mean? That means that he was in the base medrash, he was in the study hall, he was at the desk, and then I guess he would fall asleep with his head on the table, or he would lie down on the floor. He'd go for a walk, lie down in the field, Unbroken, unbroken focus. Unbroken focus for 14 years straight. And then who knows what was going on before that, right? And so Lovin, whose house he goes to, tries to cheat him a thousand times, who Kabbalistically we say is the reincarnation of the energy of the snake from the Garden of Eden, is no match for Yaakov. I mean, Yaakov is literally, literally unbreakable. Literally unbreakable. So Yaakov falls asleep. He's on his way to 
Lovin's house. And it uses this particular word that says he met this place as opposed to he arrived at this place. So what does it mean to meet a place? So Kabbalistically, it's explained that this miracle called Kfitzas Haderech, the shortening of the road was performed for him, where you start off on a journey and then miraculously you can be thousands of miles in another place, whatever it is, you, you travel a great distance because the road itself folds to meet you. So I heard from Rabbi Ritchie many years ago that someone asked, and I, I, it may have been the Ben Chai, I'm not sure, a halacha question. Since we know that according to the laws of Shabbos, you're not allowed to leave the boundaries of a city. It's called Tchum Shabbos. So there's a certain area after the dwellings of a settlement end, you can go a certain distance, but after that, you're not allowed to go. That's one of the laws of Shabbos. So according to this, are you allowed to do Kfitzas Haderach on Shabbos? This Kabbalistic idea of going to another city, because you're not really leaving your city, but you are going past the boundaries of a city. So the answer the, the Rav said back was, it depends on which type of Kfitzas Haderach you do which is like, what? I just found out that there's such a thing as this. You're telling me that there's different variations of it? He says, there's the type where the city comes to you or where you go to the city. The type where you go to the city, probably not on Shabbos. The type where the city comes to you, yes, that's, that's probably okay. So this is obviously some very advanced level halacha that we're learning right now, but good to know, just good to know just in case you find yourself hanging out with the right people. So Yaakov Avinu goes to bed, goes to sleep in this place that turns out to be the grounds where the holy temple, the Beis Amigdash, is built, will be built, and will be built again. And he goes to sleep there. And so we have a concept in Judaism of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple above, and the Holy Temple below. And as Reb Shlomo put it, when the third Beis HaMikdash gets built, we'll see that it was always there, but that we just didn't have the eyes to see it. So the Beis HaMikdash, there's a Beis HaMikdash right now, the third Beis HaMikdash is above. And Rebbe Nachman says that every time you do a mitzvah, you're building the Beis Amigdash above. And that's where Yaakov Avinu goes to sleep. Now, I want to share with you a, an idea that I had over Shabbos. Something Big Bang related. Big Bang as in cosmology. So, so we know that this idea of the Big Bang, that Judaism, the rabbis had this you know, thousands of years ago. And <clears throat> they explain that, that God took a very small object and in sort of ancient thought, a very small object would be called a mustard seed. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's a very tiny sphere. But they're talking metaphorically. 
They're saying that God took a very tiny, tiny, tiny aspect. To get a little deeper, it's, it's the moment where this point of energy which correlates with the letter Yud becomes manifest from thought into reality, from God's thought into reality, because God had already imagined a perfected world before he set about creating this world that we're in right now, which is still on the road to perfection. God created an incomplete world. And that's maybe one of the most important things that I can tell you. I, I genuinely believe you can't understand this world or your own life unless you realize that the world is still in the process of being finished. And if you think mistakenly that God in the beginning of creation created a finished world and then we blew it and all of human civilization is just trying to get back to zero, you're wrong. You don't understand the Jewish vision at all. God created a world that was on the precipice of being finished. And then he created human beings to partner with him to finish the world. And as Reb Shlomo says, I, I love to quote him on this, it's so brilliant, that if you think that the world was finished in the very beginning of creation, if you think the Garden of Eden was perfect, then what was this snake doing there? Right? And as I like to add to that teaching, the gematria for snake, Nachash, is the same gematria as Mashiach. And this is a very deep idea because sometimes, usually gematrias will be another aspect of, of that word in a, in a positive sense. It'll give you just another dimension of that word. But every once in a while, gematrias work in a different way where they'll give you the polar opposite of the word. So how is it that, what is the logic, the spiritual wisdom between the idea of snake, which represents everything negative in the world, all the unfinished aspects of the world, that's Nachash. How could that be the same gematria, the same numerical equivalent as Mashiach, who is the one through which God completes the world? Remember, it's, it's always important to emphasize that the person Mashiach is not the point. Okay? It's the next era of creation, the next evolution of reality that we're really marking. Now, that will be brought about through a Jewish Torah scholar who will rebuild the base of Migdash and gather the Jews back to Israel to fight the wars of Hashem, as the Rambam puts it. So there's a certain checklist who will be a direct descendant of King David through his son, Shlomo HaMelech. Okay, there's a lot of boxes that need to be checked for the person to be the actual Mashiach. But the idea is, it's the opposite of the snake. So how do they have the same gematria? And it goes back to this idea that the world was created incomplete. And our job was to harness this energy of the nachash, of the snake, this chaotic energy, this energy of 
incompleteness, to harness it. And had we successfully harnessed it, and what does that mean practically? By saying no to the snake, and perhaps from eating from the tree of life instead of from the tree of knowledge. Had we harnessed the energy by saying no to the snake, we would have transformed that unfinished nachas, nachash energy into Mashiach energy. And that's the idea. That's the idea. So Yaakov Avinu has a big bang moment. Let's get back to the Torah version of it. We've got this point of matter, very small like a mustard seed. And the rabbis say that God took this initial point of matter and expanded it outward in every direction. Now, does that sound like the Big Bang? Because it should. Because it is. Right? As, as I like to say, what Einstein did, which was so great, was he gave us the math to show that our concepts were true. He provided the math, but we already had the concepts. I have a little video that I made, if you want to look it up on YouTube, I'm very proud of it. I made it with someone at Princeton, and a professor of astrophysics at Princeton watched it and said that it was great. So I was so happy. It's a one-minute one video called Einstein is my favorite Kabbalist. So you can check that out if you like. But anyway, the idea is that from this explosion of energy, the material universe was made. Now, let's go deeper. Because what God has in mind before he brings the universe into creation is the perfected universe. And how is the perfected universe going to be achieved? Through tzaddikim. Now, Adam and Eve were not Jewish. But Adam and Eve had the Torah because the whole world is made out of Torah. In fact, that initial point of creation, that little tiny particle, the rabbis teach was actually the foundation stone of the Beis Amigdash, the holy temple, which means that the entire universe is made out of the DNA of the holy temple. This universe is one big holy temple, right? So God has the thought of the Jewish people before the creation. Remember, if you're wondering about how Adam and Eve can be not Jewish, but at the same time have the Torah, keep in mind that God says to Adam, work and guard the garden. That's a positive commandment and a negative commandment. A mitzvah's ase and a mitzvah's lotase. And the rabbis teach that in those words, work and guard the garden, that that was a microcosm of all 613 mitzvot. So there you see evidence that they're keeping mitzvahs in the Garden of Eden even before the, the Torah is directly given. Now, the world slowly falls into idol worship. And how does that happen? So according to the Rambam, we wanted to give honor to all of creation, to the stars and to the sun and to rain clouds, that these are all emissaries of God. And we wanted to be grateful to God for all of his different iterations of creation, all of the pathways that he made to bring blessing into the world. And then over the generations, we started to worship those 
things and to forget about the power behind them all. So instead of giving thanks to the four clouds, we started to pray to clouds. And slowly God was forgotten from the world. And of course the world as it's forgetting about God and just connecting with what they can see with their eyes. Although if you know that the only thing that exists is God, all you can see is God with your eyes. Corruption begins to set in and we've got the generation of the flood and the generation of the Tower of Babel. And so then God hits the reset button and he goes, okay, I tried it on a mass level. Now let me try it a different way. I'm going to create one family and I'm going to keep this family pretty small and I'm going to call this family the Jewish people. And they will be a light unto the nations because all of us are God's children. And so the culmination of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember the world knew about one God. Abraham contrary to what many people say, did not come up with the idea of one God. We knew about one God from Adam and generations after that. But it was forgotten, and it was Avram who on his own through his exploration of reality figured out that there is only one power. So not to take anything away, God forbid, from Abraham, but let's, not, let's make sure we're telling the story properly. We knew there was one God, but then it was forgotten. It was buried over. And then Avram, in his spiritual greatness, was able to uncover it. Now, Avram has Yitzchak, and Yitzchak has Yaakov. And Yaakov now becomes the culmination of Avraham and Yitzchak, and now Yaakov. It all becomes extant in him. And now from Yaakov is going to come the 12 tribes. And this is our Big Bang moment. So when Yaakov Avinu is dreaming, where is he dreaming? He's dreaming at the place of the base of Migdash. What did we say the first point of creation was? The foundation stone of the base of Migdash. In other words, he is at the epicenter of the entire universe. And what does God say to him during his dream? You are going to stretch out powerfully North, west, east, and south. Does that sound like the Big Bang? <laughs> it should. Because now, on a physical, human level, the purpose of creation is now emanating throughout the world. So there's this like cosmological moment, this big bang that happens during the dream at the location of the big bang. Because everything is layers. First it happens in thought. Then it happens in space. Then it happens on a soul level, right? And now it's exploding on a soul level throughout the universe. Now, the base Yaakov, the second Ishbitzer Rebbe, brings something from the Medrash, very fascinating. He says, sometimes you go to your soulmate, and sometimes your soulmate comes to you. 
And so the example of your soulmate coming to you is Yitzchak Avinu, is standing in the field, and here on a camel comes Rivka. And so that's an example of your soulmate coming to you. Yaakov Avinu is going to Lovin's house to find a wife from, from the family of Avraham. And he wakes up the morning of his wedding day after he's been married that night. And there's Leah. What's Leah doing there? He thought it was Rachel. And he wakes up and it's Leah. And that's the example of sometimes your soulmate comes to you. So the Ishvitzer Rebbe says something very, very deep. He says that this isn't just the case when it comes to soulmates. This is really all of life. And by the way, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov says that, you know, a business partnership is also a shidduch. It's also like a, you know, what we'd call like a marriage type arrangement. Okay, it's not, it's not a marriage. It's not a husband and wife dynamic. But there is a soul connection even in a business partnership that is also like a shidduch. So there's a lot of shidduchim. Friendships are a shidduch. There's a lot of shidduchim that are being made in the broader understanding of what it means, a shidduch. So the Ishpitzer goes on and he goes deeper in this idea that sometimes you go to your shidduch and sometimes your shidduch comes to you. Now, when Yaakov woke up and he saw that it was Leah, he wasn't happy about that. And nothing against Leah. Leah was exceptionally holy and an unbelievably great person. But he had been working literally seven years for Rachel. So you can forgive him for his reaction. So this idea, says the Ishvitzer, that sometimes your shidduch comes to you means sometimes life comes to you in an unexpected way that you don't like. In other words, sometimes you go to your shidduch means you have a particular plan in mind, whatever it is. Again, he's expanding on the idea beyond just a marriage partner. Sometimes you have a plan and you go towards your plan. That's you going to your shidduch. And sometimes that works out. And sometimes your shidduch comes to you. Meaning to say that God has plans for you that aren't in accordance with your own plans and perhaps often aren't in liking with what you had in mind. Now, I want to add to these words. Because look at how deep life is. In the morning, it was Leah. And it says, it says elsewhere in Tanakh, in the morning, Mashiach. And who is descended from Leah? Mashiach. David HaMelech, from the tribe of Yehuda. By the way, the Magali Amuko says Yehuda is the letters Yudke Vavke plus the letter Dalit. 
So Yehuda is like, it's the name of God, plus the Dalit stands for David HaMelech. So it's the Messianic line. It's all rolled together in the name Yehuda. And Yehuda comes from Yaakov and Leah, not Yaakov and Rachel. Yaakov and Leah, the unexpected one. And so there's this idea that there's what we can imagine and there's what beyond what we can imagine. When you go to your shidduch, that's, that, that can be the limits of what you imagine. Because you have a plan and any plan has contours to it. But the greatness of your shidduch coming to you is that it's beyond borders because you never were able to wrap your mind around it or conceptualize it to begin with. Now, I just learned that someone, that Henry Ford, one of the great enemies of the Jewish people, said the following, which is really interesting. From the, from, remember, he was the credited creator of the car, although the car existed before him. But anyway, he figured out how to make them fast and transform the world, by the way. So if you want to read a, a, a book that will give you the chills, read Henry Ford and the Jews, and you'll realize that he was really mamish, one of the great enemies of the Jewish people. Hitler had a picture of him in his office. He actually inspired Hitler. In his, in his campaign against the Jews, in his war against the Jews. He was really the worst. Anyway, what he said, actually, you know something, I don't even want to quote him. I'm going to tell you this idea in someone else's name. Peter Weir, a great film director, said that it's a waste of time to ask people like from the marketing research side of movie studios what you want to see. Because you know what people want to see? Something they've never seen before. So if they've never seen it before, how can they describe what they want to see? So that's the idea of your shidduch coming to you. It's something that you can't even have imagined. And now, this is in keeping with something that we learned last week, but now we can appreciate it maybe on a, on a deeper level, which was the question, why was it that God wanted Yitzchak, who was physically blind at the time, to give the blessing in a way where he didn't know who he was giving the blessing to? So he gives it to, he thinks he's giving it to Esav, he ends up giving it to Yaakov. But then after he gives it to Yaakov, he goes, oh, of course I'm supposed to give it to Yaakov. And then he affirms that he gave it to Yaakov. And then at the end of the Parsha, he gives it voluntarily and knowingly to Yaakov. So it, it's not like he had to have his arm twisted or anything like that. Once it was pointed out to him that it should be Yaakov, he immediately accepted it and affirmed it. So therefore, why did God, at the moment of the giving of the blessing, want Yitzchak not to know who he was blessing? And so the explanation that I heard, which is very, very deep, is that his blessing had to really be above the tree of knowledge. Remember, everything goes south, so to speak, 
when we eat from the tree of knowledge. You see, as blessed, as the Rambam put it, what, what's the name of the tree of knowledge, by the way? It's the, the, the Eitzah Das Tovarah. Okay, the, the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Now, good and bad might sound like, okay, those are polar opposites. But believe it or not, they're, they're not polar opposites, and I'll explain it to you in a moment. The Rambam says that much more extreme than good and bad is true and false. That's actually black and white. That's actually the ultimate. And that before we had black and white, we had true and false in the world. And what happened is, after we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, everything became relativistic. Meaning to say, if you say the word good, well, what's good for me may not be good for you. And what's bad for you may not be bad for me. So all of a sudden, everything becomes gray area and mixed together, which is this world. So the idea is that Yitzchak Avinu is on some level finite, even though he's one of the greatest people that ever lived, he's finite in that he can only think the furthest reaches of what he himself can conceive. And that's the glass ceiling, if you will, that the eating from the tree of knowledge of good and bad put over our thought processes and over creation. But if he doesn't know who he's giving the blessing to, he's able to rise above the limitations of the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And he's able to summon the infinite down into this world and bless Yaakov with an infinite blessing, not just the blessing that he himself is able to conceptualize. And I'll just tell you from my own life, I, I experienced this in my own life, where we, we didn't know the, the, the gender of our children. We found out most of them. But there was one of our kids, we, we didn't find out until the moment that they were born. But the others we, we did find out because there was always some complication in the pregnancy and there was always some doctor's visit where we ended up finding out the, the gender. Anyway, what I found in my own davening was that once I knew the gender of the baby, I davened for the baby differently. Because when I didn't know, it's like, well, it could be anything under the sun. But once I knew it's a boy or it's a girl, I, I wanted to make my prayers more precise. But in making them more precise, they also became more limited. And I felt that. I felt like a bit of a spiritual ureta fall in terms of my davening. But, but at the same time, it just seemed to be the, the more informed, more practical way to go about it. So from there, I see in my own life that if you're coming from a place of knowing, you're also coming from a place of limitation. So that's the idea that sometimes your shidduch comes to you. 
Sometimes God brings circumstances to you in ways that you can't even fathom. And even though you don't like them in the moment, doors are being opened to you to arrive at places that you would never think to go or know to look into. And that's the idea in the morning there was light because Mashiach is coming from beyond, 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 beyond. One of the scariest pieces of Torah I ever learned, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar, that when the spies looked into the land, they said the land is, is so great. The Jewish people, the way Reb Shlomo put it, was the, the spies looked into the heavenly bank accounts of the Jewish people. And they saw that we didn't have enough merits to deserve the land. But what the spies didn't realize is that God can give it to us as a gift. You know, you can say in your own life, I'm not worthy. And the truth is, you actually may not be worthy. <laughs> it's not just you being holy. Oh, I'm not worthy. You actually may not be worthy. But God can give it to you as a gift. God can give it to you as a gift. It says that in Shemayim, there's, a, there's an area in Shemayim called the treasury of undeserved gifts. And everyone wants from the treasury of undeserved gifts. But you know what I think the problem is? Everyone's waiting on the line of deserved gifts. Because <laughs> God, when are you going to give me what you owe me? Everyone's standing in the wrong line. As opposed to, well, how can I ever merit such a thing? I have no merit. Give me a cigarette. So we just celebrated in America Thanksgiving. And I, I think that this is such a, a beautiful prayer. And, you know, during the repetition of the, of the Shmona Esrei, the main, the main prayer of the davening, we've got something called Modim, where we bend down and we thank God for everything he's given us. And what's interesting about Modim, as opposed to all the other prayers in the Shemona Esrei, is that when the individual recites it, we say one version of it. And then when the chazan, when the cantor, repeats the Shemona Esrei, and we get up to that side, it's the only one, it's the only prayer that we say again. But this time we say a different version of the prayer that we had said earlier. And I want to read to you the end of the prayer that we say during the repetition part, because I think it's, it's awesome. We thank you, meaning we thank God. We thank you for inspiring us to thank you. Blessed is the God of thanksgiving. Isn't that awesome? We, we thank you for inspiring us to thank you. Meaning to say that even when we thank you, God, we're filled with gratitude for allowing us to even to, to think to thank you and to even be able to thank you. You know, 
Sometimes, you know, we can thank God and think, oh, you know, we thanked God. So I did my job. But then when you realize that even the ability to thank God is a blessing that you received from God. Now, thanking is the root word of the name Yehuda. That's where we get the name Jews from. Yehudim comes from the word to be thankful, to be thankers, right? We're thankers. We, we, we acknowledge blessings and we, we bring them back, back up to God. We thank God for them. And there is a very interesting moment. It just struck me, you know, in this Shabbos, looking at, at how Leah names the children. So let's go through the children. First, she names the first one Ruvain. Ruvain has the Hebrew word to see in it. And it says that God saw, this is the art scroll translation, God saw my humiliation and blessed me with this child. Meaning that, you know, it was a, it was a super awkward thing, especially for Leah in the beginning of the marriage since she knew that she wasn't the one that Yaakov had in mind and now she's his wife. And by the way, he worked seven years for Rachel, but instead he gets Leah. And then it's something like two weeks later, he gets Rachel and then works another seven years to earn what he had already received. Meaning to say at the very origin of that family structure, there's already two wives. It's not like Yaakov and Leah for seven years and then Rachel gets folded in. It's Yaakov, Rachel, and Leah pretty much from the beginning of the marriage. So, you know, for Leah, this was a very emotionally difficult time, to say the least. And the rabbis say that she was loved, but she felt unloved. And I think if all of us put ourselves in Leah's shoes, we probably would have experienced the same things, no matter how great Yaakov was. There's a certain elemental emotionality that, that's hard to deny, right? Anyway, the first child is named, God has seen my humiliation. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what the Hebrew word they're translating is, but that is a very harsh English trans translation. So... I'm just attributing it to Art Scroll, and you can look it up and what the actual word is. So what's the point? Mashiach doesn't come from that line, doesn't come from Ruvain. The next child is Shimon, which has the word Shema in it. God is, she says, God has heard how I'm unloved. Mashiach doesn't come from that line. The third child is Levi. That means to cleave. She says, now I've had three sons. My husband will cleave to me. That's more positive. Now, who comes from that line? Moshe? <laughs> Aaron? Miriam? Okay, it's better. <laughs> and then comes the fourth child, and she says, I'm, I'm thanking you, God. I'm thanking you, God. And that's Yehuda. And that's the line that Mashiach comes from. So, interesting, no? 
What is the energy? What is the energy of Mashiach? Gratitude. Gratitude. We were privileged to have the Biala Rebbe from B'nai Brach with us this Shabbos at the Happy Minion. And he brought this Torah that Makshava, which is Hebrew for the word thoughts, your thoughts, Makshava is the same letters as Besimcha. That when you're Besimcha, meaning that when you're happy, your thoughts, your thoughts produce good things. Right? And as the Baal Shem Tov teaches, you are where your thoughts are. Right? You can look one way on the outside, but if you're striving for holiness, right? You are where your thoughts are. Okay, so let's think good thoughts. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.